Tony Potts, Losing My Spurs, Gaza the Grief and the Glory is out now. Is it paperback or hardback? Hardback. And have you been sent a copy or has Brexit made it difficult? I think it's on its way. It's in transit. But um, from my experience with China deliveries, it could it could be anywhere. So I've got my fingers crossed that it's it's kind of on its way. I hope so. So you are, uh, are you in a city or in one of the smaller places? Well, it's, it was described to me as one of the smaller places when we signed the contract, but it, a smaller place in China says 9 million people in the yeah. city. Exactly, it was the size of but, London. Yeah. Is it one of the new cities? <laughs> I know they build cities over there. Yeah, well, it, it, they're still building it all the time, but people who've been here even five years will, will just say, well, that, that sort of 10 miles of buildings over there wasn't there five years ago, and in that direction, that was swamp. And that was, so they, they, they're building the city up you know, as we speak, there's, there's forever work going on in the city. It's, it's incredible how quickly buildings go up here. Mm. Oh, but there is a really good book by Rowan Simons, who was a BBC... I think he was working for Chinese television. And he went over to China, wrote this book, Bamboo Goalposts, which is about teaching Chinese kids what... Well, they invented Kuju, which was a kind of football. But association football, we should say. So, yeah. you, did you say you teach maths? What do you teach in China? Um primary school teacher now so um, just everything really so I, I don't teach maths here now funnily enough I've, uh, I've got a co-teacher teaching maths but in theory I, I could teach maths as well so I'm English science humanities and yeah it could be maths as well but I, I don't this year and we'll, we'll move back to football don't worry but I am curious how many hours of homework do you set per night eight no we're this is completely this is an international school oh, so okay. for children to go to our school they need um, an international passport so a lot of our parents aren't really very keen on homework at all. And that's kind of one of the reasons, one of the reasons that they like to come to our, our kind of a school, because it's a little bit more Western in its, our, our curriculum's Western and the homework we give is a little bit more Western. So I, I don't give a lot of homework at all. I think I, I've got a lot of parents who wouldn't be happy if I did a lot of homework. So yeah, it's, it's a lot different uh, as opposed to a lot of our co-teachers, which are our Chinese teachers, because they teach uh, Chinese lessons as well during the day. Um, they have children who are going through the system and that, that, yeah, they tell us that they have so much work, they work so hard that the, ch- the children and the young adults out here. Ni hao wo jiao Johnny. Zai Jen. Oh, that is That's, good. I, 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 yeah, I've got ni hao. Um, my wife can do the second part, but I, I'm struggling. I've got uh, soy sauce, I can say, yeah. because <laughs> I tell you I can eat rice, yeah? So I've, I've just got the essentials. Mei Guo is what America. Yep. In- Byway, Budweiser. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I've never so- been. I've never been to China, but it's a, it's a different world. How long have you been there? Um, this is my third year, so I'm halfway through my third year of teaching. Um, that's um, good. Out here, so best, yeah, it's, best uh, it's been a great experience. Been a great experience, I've got to say. And it's um, in terms of like workload and how you're valued and paperwork and all that. It's, it's so much better. So much better. Would it be described, I know that Xi Jinping is trying to make China the football nation, but would it be described as a footballing utopia, better than Disneyland, playing until the streetlights come on in Welling, southeast London? <laughs> no, definitely not. Far from it, I would say. You know, I don't see a lot of, of football going on here. Or They like, um, so if we go to sort of a bar to see a football match or something, then you'll have, there'll be some Chinese watching it, but... It's, it's, you know, people don't pile down the pubs to go and watch a, a game of football here or 
if I if I went into a bar and it was say it was a Premier League, I would have to ask for them to put it on in a lot of the bars. Mm. Even if it was like a sports bar, I'd have to say, "Oh, could you put on the football?" And we'd be like, "What's the football? Oh, the Premier League. Oh, okay. Or well, what teams are they? You know, well, at least in Ningbo, it's not caught on that much yet." I read James Montague's book, The Billionaires Club, which is worth a read. And uh, he makes the point that Birmingham, Wolves and Villa were, at the time of writing the book, um, Villa uh, Villa have since been sold on to an Egyptian owner. They were all Chinese-owned. So what were China doing in Birmingham? Why were they buying football clubs? No one... It's a rhetorical question. No one really knows. Yeah. uh, now that Chinese wealth has to be kept in the country, it's all getting stranger and into Milan have had these problems that you may have known about through friends. You certainly would have been reported on it, but Suning has been in trouble. All right. Yeah, this is all news to me. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> the, the Football Library, <laughs> yeah. informing Chinese uh, dwellers about what's going on in China. Um, <laughs> as a kid, uh, Tony Potts, you were completely single-minded. You saw everyone as your competition. And some of these players... Yes have grown up to become um, people who say they would smash it on Sky Sports. So do you see much of Jamie Redknapp in two dimensions? He's turning into his dad, which is fun. Yeah, he is slowly turning into his dad, definitely. Yeah, he, he's, he was another one, Jamie, who was he was already like ready-made football. You know, when you just meet someone and you're like, well... well you are what it is. You know, if, if you could have picked someone when I was, when I first met him at the time, and he was already about six foot, he was uh, fairly well built. He, his technique was incredible. And he just, he, he was the most comfortable and at home person at the club. Even, even first team players didn't seem as relaxed and at, at home as he did. He spoke to the first team players as if they'd known them all his life kind of thing. He wasn't daunted by it anybody or anything at that point he just he was you know he was the one you would kind of look at and go oh, that's what you want to be that's how, that's the one you need to keep an eye on and watch what they do and watch how they do things because he was just he was a, he was a already built football he was just it was just a case of right he's just got to get old enough to be able to start playing properly in the first team kind of thing there are three uh, midfield players apart from red nap that come out really well in this book uh, two of them you played pool with uh, and the other became the um, runner of the tactics truck. When you were in the UK, did were you keen to listen to Andy Townsend as keenly as you saw him when he was playing for Welling? Yeah, I, must have, I preferred seeing him play for Welling, if I'm honest, <laughs> um, than the tactics truck. I remember the tactics truck well. Uh, I also remember, I don't know if you can remember, he did, um, and this caused like, a big stir at the, the training ground, he did a, an ugliest footballer team mm. in the sun. Um, once and it was it must have been the same at every football ground but it was everyone came in with copies of it I I can't remember who it was but I think there was someone at Tottenham who made the side and I would imagine every club down in the country who had one of the players who made that team would have had it plastered all around the changing room so I can remember him doing that as well but Mm -hmm. I always I thought he he had a really really slow start to his football career he's probably quite a good example for a lot of people because I remember following him he left well in and he he was already way beyond Welling's level. He went to Weymouth. He was at Weymouth for a fair amount of time. He then, I remember, he played for some for possibly Southampton and Aston Villa with barely really registering on the scale. He kind of he would come in for the odd game here and there, have a little run, and be out of it. And then he's now one of the sort of the better known players. And I, when they do 
you know, when people pick their one to eleven of sides, people often talk about him as being one of the top Premier League midfielders. He seems to have been mentioned quite a lot. So he, he's a he's a real funny career that he had in terms of how late he kind of blossomed and really became a household name. Yeah, it doesn't really happen now. Kevin Phillips is also there, released by Southampton, played for yeah. Bulldog Town and then became Kevin Phillips. You know he's just taken, you might not know this, uh, he's a manager of South Shields. Yeah, I just saw a picture of that this week, oh, actually, cool. just literally this week. Yeah. Yeah, like I say, he was a fullback when he got released yeah. by Southampton. They were playing him as a right-back or a left-back and then he comes on and he, he was, was he, the top the only Englishman to to be the top European scorer, wasn't he, at one point? I don't uh, yeah, the European is. Golden Boot. I think Michael Owen. Oh, yes. That's it. That's right. With with Niall Quinn, the great Niall Quinn, whom you may have played yeah. against or seen. You may have seen Niall Quinn play at Arsenal. Yeah, I had a friend, actually. He was at Arsenal when Niall Quinn was coming through and they had to do like this skill session. And my friend was sort of 14, but was very technically quite a good player. And he was coupled up with Niall Quinn for this practice and Niall Quinn said to him oh you do all that he says I can't do any of that ball skill stuff <laughs> so he, <laughs> he got like the well, he got my friend who was 14 or 15 so when the ball got played into them as a pair Niall Quinn took a step back and the 14, 15 year old came in to keep the ball up they were supposed to in their square and then Niall Quinn would do the next part <laughs> <laughs> uh, another autobiography of Niall Quinn is in the football library Jamie Redknapp's really? book um, I suppose this would work for fans of Jamie Redknapp's book, which came out a couple of years ago. Losing my Spurs is even better uh, because you don't know. I didn't know much about you. I, I barely knew that you have a youth cup medal. Did you take that with you to China? Do your parents have it? Where is it? Yeah, it's in, it's in a loft at the moment. I think it's in my mother-in-law's loft. In oh. a, I'm pretty sure I know the box is in as well. Yes. Brilliant. But yeah, congratulations for winning it yeah. because it's uh, I spoke to Nigel Gibbs who's currently coaching at Spurs and he says yep every youth player knows that the youth cup is the pinnacle and uh, in 1990 there is a great um, player whose name has, uh, is not as famous as the one club man whom he marked but Warren Hackett you um, yes. which is nominative determinism <laughs> I would not like to be Ryan Giggs up against Warren Hackett what kind of a player was he and what happened to his career Yes, yeah, so Warren. Well, Warren was. I was. Was a really, really nice, like person. Like, I, and he was kind of friends with the people I used to travel into Tottenham with. So I got to know him quite, kind of well. But he was very scary. He he was someone who I can remember one of the coaches once telling him to kick one of the other players because they didn't think that that player was tough enough. So they told him to spend a training session basically kicking the lumps out of this other player. And Warren just was like, yep, okay. <laughs> That's what he did. So he spent the whole session just flying in on tackles on this. I can't remember who it was now, but just flying in on tackles, trying to get this player to be a little bit more physical. That was Warren to a T. He was on the pitch. He was just completely like one-tracked. He wasn't, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying, he wasn't a player with the most necessarily the, the most ability. He was a good player, but he, he was 100%, absolute 100%, 100% training, 100% playing 100% life and I think he went and he didn't have a bad career I, I can remember him playing at teams I think like Peterborough that kind of level he, he played for Orient I believe quite a few times he kind of did quite well in the lower leagues where it probably again with all, all respect to Warren it probably suited his style of play possibly better than 
like going further on in, in Tottenham as he did, as he was. Now I've just looked him up. He turned fifty last month. I hope you sent a card. Um, <laughs> he was assistant head at East Bengal, working with Trevor Morgan, uh, which is a name oh, really? I recognise. Uh, just looking at his LinkedIn, um, he um, moved to Canada for a bit. He was academy manager at Dagenham and Redbridge, which was shut down because of the relegation. And he's with the FA as the national coach developer, so he coaches the coaches. Oh, okay. That's brilliant. So he get he it would frighten the life out of any young player coming to be a coach. Oh yeah, definitely. That's definitely. Have you read Ollie Kay's book about Adrian Doherty called Forever Young? Yes, I have. Yes. Now, yes. Did he did he talk to you? Did he come to you asking for a quote? No. 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 He didn't. Who was a kind of Nick Drake type folk singer who sometimes was one of the best footballers of his age group in the country. against them and it was Ryan Giggs was on one side it was, it was called Ryan Wilson at the time and he was on the other wing and we got coach you know we, we it was very professional still we had like scouting reports and things and both of those were flagged up as the two that we had to watch and Doherty was the was the one who they went on about more he was the one that got the bigger mention as the bigger danger and the one who we really had to sort of double up on and make sure they didn't get the ball out to him and all that kind of thing. And you were playing as a 10, as a Sheringham yes. type player? Yeah, yes. Yeah, I sometimes sometimes I drop back into midfield, sometimes I go right up front, but generally when the team was set out and with one in the hole kind of thing, that would be me. Brill. That was, yes, which was a role that... the. There's a book called The Perfect Ten, which is a brilliant book. And talking of tens, um, you watched England play France as, you're going to have to take me through this, a shadow England team? Or were you called up to the senior squad? I'm not quite sure what happened. But... Yeah, so, so at the end of the season, it was the season we won the Youth Cup, I got a letter through from the FA, myself and Greg Howe, who was another player at Spurs, we got, both got pulled up to the shadow squad, which is a squad of sort of six players, who are there in case anyone drops out of the actual squad for England. And then pretty much immediately, we then got, or I then got a phone call saying that I was to be brought up into the main team as such. Um, so I was already, you know, climbing the walls and just jumping around for joy kind of thing. And then found out that it was even better. I was actually going to go to the game as well. So, um, yeah, that's, that was when I got called up and, we went to, we spent some amazing days. We were in a hotel near Wolfham Abbey and we went to Wolfham Abbey for, there was about two or three training sessions where we, we sort of turned up as the first team England players were finishing training. Uh, so we watched them finish their training session the last little bit and then we'd go out on the pitch and do our training session. And then it finished with, I think they played, they played Uruguay and I think it was the last game before the tournament. So it must have been the 88 tournament I'm gone on the ninth the ninth yeah, so it must have been um, I think it might have been the last warm up game in England possibly against Uruguay and they were they they were struggling a little bit the, the England team at that time despite having a very good squad they they weren't like putting up any bridges in the build up to that to that tournament and but I could just it's some of the most amazing days ever I had in that week just watching some of these players training and being up close and seeing them was Oh, it's the stuff of just dreams, really. It was amazing for me at that point. Just 
the, 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 the names that were in that squad. People like Brian Robson, I think, was playing, and Gazza and John Barnes were there, and Stuart Pearce, and possibly, I think, Terry Butcher might have been there. There's this well, great description just... of mentioning Stuart Pearce. He hit a free kick so hard that it came off the bar and bounced all the way to the halfway line. Yeah. That's a brilliant yeah, detail. Was... Yeah. It was, inc- it was it was honestly an amazing... I've never seen anyone hit a ball as hard as he was hitting the ball. He, he had about 10 footballs lined up, and they weren't the edge of the box. He was, he was a good 10 yards further back. Like, I remember him hitting a free kick against France, maybe at Wembley, from a similar sort of this. He just smashed it, and he was hitting it so hard, but he was he was bending it. You know, like, you, you see someone bend a ball around a, a wall, and they kind of clip it to bend it. You take a little bit of pace off to get in the bend, but yeah. he was bending it while hitting it harder than I've ever seen anyone hit a football in my life. And he did it. Every single one of them, every one of them just flew off his foot. Everyone was just stopping. Even some of the like the England established players were just standing there watching while he was doing it. Uh, Stuart Pearce has written a couple of books, Psycho, the autobiography, and then there was one uh, which came out to coincide with the Euros that look back on Euro 96, which is... 25 years ago, I remember watching, that was my first tournament, and if Paul Gascoigne had touched the ball, we wouldn't have had the penalties. Paul Gascoigne, who was in the Italia 90 team of the tournament, who um, single-handedly dragged Spurs through the 1990-91 season, where, this is crazy, how many wins in the 20 games leading up to that FA Cup in the league? Did Spurs win? Oh, yeah, very, very few. I think wasn't it? It was like two games or something. You say, last... you say one. They threw everything in. Was it one with the yeah. FA Cup and Gaza had a crack and scored in the semi-final. I think Spurs' most famous goal, um, yeah, ever. And were you in the stadium for it? The semi-final. The semi-final. I wasn't in the stadium. I can't remember why I wasn't. I mean, it may well have been that it was like the, the build-up still to my. Um, possibly build up still to my operation at that time. So I, I might have been in and out of sort of, what would you call them, doctor's surgeries yeah. kind of thing and physio rooms and all of that at the time. So I probably was advised not to go, if, if I can remember rightly. So I, I wasn't there live. I watched it live, but I wasn't actually physically there live. Can I just, again, uh, mention, this book is really well written, and I hope that doesn't come across in a way that is a pat on the head. There's, there's this <laughs> description that you give, of when you're told quite dismissively by a Harley Street surgeon, oh, I don't think you can play again. He probably said it like that. I mean, he may have been Northern. Yes. But, um, what so was... It was exactly as you just described yeah. it. Uh, run along now. And the feeling that you've got is, I'll always remember this, I think, because it's a really good description. Do you remember what you wrote about hearing the news? I think so. Yeah. I, I can remember it feeling like that feeling when you've lost your keys or you've lost something like your phone or something important. And for a second, you, you kind of get that feeling in the, in the pit of your stomach and you just feel that whole nervous, oh no, kind of feeling. And it was like that, but it just stayed with me. I never quite, it never, it just stayed for so long, that feeling. He, even after we walked out, I was still having that feeling. It was like I was barely breathing, if I remember it rightly. It was a horrible, horrible moment. I know that much. Yeah, and it was just me. There was no one else there. He just walked in. It was just me sitting in the bed by myself. It's, it is brutal. And this book is short. I read it all last night. Um, it is full of emotion. And there doesn't seem to be any catharsis in that every, every kind of horrible tragedy needs that moment where the sins are washed away or the horrors are washed away. I think the ultimate tragedy, Tony, and sorry to say this, is that you've never had that catharsis unless 
this new wife that you mention um, <laughs> is that catharsis. So um, how have the last 30 years of your life been? Oh, they've been good, to be honest, they're especially the last sort of 15 of them. Yeah, they've kind of, it's gone in a really nice direction. I've, I have, I've met kind of my person and that's made a huge difference for me. And I, I feel content and I feel, you know, I'm happy with my life. I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say that, that there's always that in the back of my mind or the back of my head, the, the alternative life that I had and that I'd always planned and I'd always wanted. I think I say in the book at one point, and I still have them even now, even this week I've woken up from a dream where um, I was, and it, there were always various sort of trials that I'm having and that I can never quite get, I never actually play, I never actually kick a ball in anger in them. I always, I, I go to go out and I've not got the boots in the bag or I'm just trying to get to the ground and I can't find the ground or... Um, the referee hasn't turned up or there's always there's something that stops me always playing in this trial and it's I know subconsciously I know that deep down inside there's kind of there's always going to be a little bit of me that's a little bit of a you know like what if and what what could have happened or you know where could I have been I think that's always there but I am I'm genuinely I'm not trying to convince anyone but I'm genuinely I am genuinely content in my life and content as a person but yeah my, my, I think my dreams probably give me away uh, well yes I'm no Freud but I think even Sigmund Freud as a two year old would have diagnosed that so that's the mental <laughs> side I, I told my mum yeah. I saw my mum this morning and I said I'm talking to this guy Tony Potts do you think it was a good idea for him to tell a fib about how badly injured he was and then get on a plane to Wellington to play <laughs> football I mean Numpty in Numptius Maximus. Yeah. But you lived in yeah. New Zealand. The, 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 that New Zealand story, I wanted more of that if I were editing that book. And right. I'm, you worked with Pitch, so I'm sure it was edited to perfection by Paul and Jane. Yeah, no, they've been brilliant with me. Fantastic. Yeah, they always are. You've, you've got to tell me about two funny things before we close up. One yeah. is this X Factor right. trial at Stoke, which is hilarious. And yes. the other is uh, your experience in the dressing room over in New Zealand and the guy of oh, three and the guy who you play a horrible practical joke on and yeah. it's all it's all in the book yes. right? if you could do it as it run through those as a soup son of the book that was me having I, I just left Tottenham so I was kind of a, a bit desperate a bit too desperate if I'm honest I kind of was just rushing from one thing to another and Stoke got in touch with me and I thought it was a great opportunity and I was very excited about it. It was a long train journey and I've travelled up there for this game and it was being played at the actual ground. So that was quite exciting as well because I thought it was like this, you know, this could be it. This could be me getting back into it again. I've not played for a long time, obviously, with the injury. And I turned up at the ground and there was so many people there already just waiting outside the ground kind of thing. So I thought that was a little bit strange. And also they weren't... Oh, it's not funny, I don't don't put it too penny, but they didn't look like footballers. A lot of them, they you kind of, they didn't, yeah, they just didn't have the, the footballer look about them. So I was kind of a little bit confused where it was. I thought they might be people coming in to watch the game or something. And then we just went out on the pitch. We got changed, and the change room was just packed. There was there was it, there was barely an inch in the changing room. We got changed and went out on the pitch, and they put us into. If I remember right, there was there was three teams, three teams of about thirteen players, and there were times when they were playing with all 13 on the pitch as well. So they were, it, it wasn't the best organised thing. Mm. And it turned out there was only 
I think, three of us who'd been actually invited down for this trial game. The others, it had been almost a kind of, you know, you say X Factor, that kind of thing, where they'd advertised, oh, we're having a trial. But it wasn't like a small-time team that was doing this. It was Stoke, so it's the biggest team in the area. So there was just people turning up who maybe couldn't even get in their school side, maybe were playing Sunday football, but they just turned up for this trial. And the first lot of people who'd applied almost were the ones who got it. So we were playing this game, and it immediately became clear that there was only probably two other people there who could kick a ball properly or who played at any kind of a level. And it was just laughable. It was absolutely laughable. It was some of the funniest things, people running into each other, they were just slicing the ball off the pitch, but they were 100% as well, you know, the kind of player who you hear, like if you're playing Sunday football, who talks a good game, and so they'd slice the ball off the pitch and then shout at someone who'd not <laughs> been there for the, for the past, it was that kind of atmosphere, and it just ended up, that me and the other two players obviously identified that we were the three who'd been invited, and we just... By the end of it, it went from being tragic to just one of the funniest things. Then we were just cracking up, laughing, because there were so many things happening. And it, it, it was to the point where they stopped the trial early and they called out the three of us over and they tried to convince us to come back another day and say, look, this wasn't how we thought it was going to turn out. And, you know, we, we did want you three to come down and all the rest of it. But by then, I think all three of us are just, you know, it was, I know, you know it's OK, it's maybe isn't quite what we thought it was going to be. It was just... The funniest, the funniest day. That reminds me of when I was watching England Iceland and Wayne Rooney passed the ball out and I just laughed. I said, This can't be true. And who was manager that day for England? Oh, who was it? I can't remember that. I can remember the game. I can remember actually probably the pass you're talking about as well. We just couldn't even yep. pass it five yards that day. Terrible. Which you might oh, Hodgson, know. was it? Yep. Yeah, no, I've seen that today. Yeah, it's come, almost come out of retirement, hasn't it? It's 74. I mean, he's even older than Ranieri. I think what it is is that Ray Lewington probably wanted the job because he was manager of Watford when Watford had zero money. And Ray Lou is, is, uh, you may have come across Ray Lou actually, on barking. He's got a good shout, one of the best shouts in football. Uh, But Roy Hodgson, (laughs) as as we talk on the 25th and as this goes out on the 28th, it looks like Roy Hodgson, whom the Pozzos will have known from Italian football, he would have turned up at Udinese as an opposing coach. You were coached by El Tell, Terry Venables, who doesn't yes. get, whose personal life and business life is known about. But Venables pops yeah. up in my Youth Cup book from Kids to Champions, which I'm not here to plug, because he also won the Youth Cup, 1960-1961 with Chelsea. He was part of Bonetti, Tambling, Venables, a really good Chelsea youth team, because Ted Drake um, wanted to promote young players. And it seemed in the 80s post-Bia, post-Ardiles, that Spurs were a bit of a mishmash. Brilliant coaches. Yeah. Obviously, you had the European band, so all the players couldn't play in Europe. Gary Lineker moved back from Barcelona. He comes out very well in your book. There are so many pinch-yourself moments in this book. It, is, it rivals Pat Nevin's book, which I think is the best footballer memoir. Gary Nelson's Left Foot Forward, which you may have read when it came out 30 years ago. Yeah, He's a top yes. lad. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I'm trying to think yeah, of other memoirs. Paul McGrath's book? Yeah. yeah. I like the Morrison one I quite enjoyed recently, I read. The, the centre-half, the big... I mentioned actually in the book, the, um, the centre-half for Manchester City, is it Morrison, his name? When they were sort of fighting back up to the Premier League, they was out of the out of the first division for a little while. And they had like Paul Dickoff playing for yes. them. And I can't remember his full name. I thought it was Morrison, but I might be wrong. He's a centre-half anyway, but he was, he was like the scariest centre-half 
his, his book is an amazing Jeez, book. No, I've completely missed this. This is, you're absolutely right. Andy Morrison, who uh, was, was at Plymouth and then played for Man City yeah. in those days. Connor Keys Nomads, he's the manager. I will have to, although he quit in um, October, to recharge his batteries. <laughs> Which, what, what you've just said, it looks like the batteries. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, he was, he was frightening. <laughs> you, you mentioned throughout the book, and it's lovely that you've name-checked some of the kids who have won Youth Cups. Andy Roberts did very well at Millwall. Yeah. Matty Rose did fantastically at QPR, having come from Arsenal. There's this great anecdote that I read about Rose. You say he's the nicest kid you ever meet. And this is, a, this is some exclusives for the book. Uh, he got um, worn down by football, became an accountant or a lawyer, and then one day he realised that he wasn't cut out for it because he didn't love his second career. So he's now a coach and he seems to be oh, really? a lot liked. You should definitely get back in touch with him. You went to school with him. school every he was he was obsessed as as I was with football so every second that we could be outside kicking the ball about we were outside kicking the ball about I suppose we should finish this is the book Gaza the grief and the glory I haven't gone into Gaza so much but you tell the anecdotes which are like old whiskies they're there you can sip them uh, but you can't drink them all in one go because you'll you'll throw up like Gaza (laughs) there you go as a metaphor Um, you won Thank you. You won everything. You barely lost a game as a kid. Do you also have all of the pre-Youth Cup medals and trophies and palaver? Uh, and, t- and also, side question, do you have anything from your time at West Ham? Nothing from the side. I don't think I've got anything from my time at West Ham. Yeah, so, just a thick um, I, I don't, yeah. so don't like, The only thing I have, I have a small scar on my foot still from my treatment at West Ham once when I had an injury. Other than that, I don't think I ever got anything for out of West Ham unfortunately although I loved I loved the club you know like as a, as a thing how they were at the time you know they were the, like the academy of Tony football Tony Carr who's got a book out they, this year yeah but uh, yeah the way they treated Bobby Moore was not cricket no no, no. And, I, and they've done that with a, with a, like a couple of my I've mentioned in the book I had a couple of friends as well I, I don't think were particularly well treated either as they came through so mm. they're not my my favourite club for that reason I, I did trail this you have got to give a potted version of the practical joke you played on this guy in New yes. Zealand because it's a, it's a pub story. It's a really good pub anecdote, and we have to finish with that tone. His name was Stuart, and I lived in the same sort of house as him. There was a house that was set in three different different parts to it, and they were all that you couldn't get to one without coming out and going back into the other one on the side of a hill. So I kind of lived in the same house all the while I was there. And he was a strange person. He was he was very good. He, he knew his football, but he was quite sort of sneaky in a way. So what would happen is we would sort of say to him, oh, Stuart, are you going to go so-and-so? And he'd say, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to stay in. And then we'd go out and we'd see him out by himself and he'd try and hide his kind of thing. It was that kind of, you know, we'd be like, well, why didn't he just say to us that he was going to be out? Why has he just snuck out without saying anything to us? And he was members of um, a gym and we used to go there of an evening and they had a jacuzzi and a swimming ball and it was quite nice at the end of the night to just kind of go after training and things. Um, but we could only get in with him because it was his pass that we got in on. And it started to get to where we'd, we'd say, oh, we're going down the gym, Stuart. And he'd be oh, no, no, I'm not going today. I'm just going to pop around my friend's house or I'm just going to go up to pop into town for something. And then um, myself and Greg, who was out there with me, we would get in his car 
and we'd go off somewhere else, maybe to get McDonald's or a Kentucky or something. And as we drove past the gym, we'd see Stuart's car there, and he'd snuck off and gone to the gym by himself. On like the second or third time that this happened, we were like, right, we've got to do something about this. So we pulled up in the car park, and we saw Stuart's car, and we wrote a little note, and it was like a love letter that we'd, we kind of wrote from an imaginary woman. So this woman was saying, I've, I've seen you in the gym, I've been too nervous to talk to you, would you fancy meeting me for a drink in the bar? And then we, like, as school kids, hid, hid behind a corner and waited for Stuart to come out. So eventually, Stuart's come out and he's picked up this letter and he's looking at the letter and he's kind of, you can see he's kind of very pleased with this letter. And then he's gone into the bar and he's sat in the bar and we snuck up in the dark through outside the window and we're sneakily looking in the window again, giggling away like school kids. And then... After a while, he's sitting there and him standing up every time a woman walks in the bar because he's thinking this is going to be his mysterious woman. So he stand up and then that woman walks straight past him and go and meet her boyfriend at the bar or just go to the bar and get a drink and we would just crack up laughing again. And then he started to come out and obviously we're supposed to be back at the flat by now or back at the house by now. So we jumped in Greg's car and we shot back to the house. Um, and then about two minutes after we've got in and we've just turned the telly on, Stuart walks in. So me and Greg, if man, we were just sitting there going, oh, I can't believe that. Look, he's still with that person. So we pretend like we've been watching this program, but just giggling away because obviously we haven't got a clue what's going on in the program on the telly. And Stuart's just walking up and down going, mm, unbelievable, can't believe it. Look at this, look at this. And we're just ignoring him, not taking the bait. He's like, wow, look, would you have thought it? Who'd have thought it? And in the end, Greg kind of went, oh, what, what is it? What is it, Stuart? He said, well, he said, um, it was like I was at the gym and he's we told us the whole story that we already know about. But at the end of it, he says, I think I know who she is. And she's a, she's a stunner. She's an absolute stunner. So at that, we were just, oh, well, we've got, we can't tell him now. We can't <laughs> let him know that it's not true. So then we've said, oh, well, why are you here then? And he's like, what do you mean? He said, well, if it's her and she's like you're saying, then this could be like the one. This could be what an opportunity you've got. I can't believe you're here. You should be there. Why? So he, he's like, yeah. And he's practically run out, jumped in his car sped back to the gym we've run out jumped in our car sped back after him pulled up again and he was there they they practically threw him out of the bar at the end of the night and anyway this went on for a while that all the players now said everyone else in the team knew what had happened kind of thing so everyone whoever they see just go oh, have you seen her yet and he said no i think she's just a bit shy because i'm pretty sure it's her and i smiled her and she smiled and all this kind of stuff going on and it even got to the point where we put an advert in the um, match day program mm. asking if the mysterious lady was would mind stepping forward um because Stuart is single and he is and it's just that yeah a big kind of finale to it and we left New Zealand and as far as we know Stuart was still visiting that gym and still looking out for this non-existent woman that he was after well I've managed to track Stuart down so I'm just going to get him on the court (laughs) And he's here tonight. That is, that's such a brilliant anecdote. And the moral of the story is don't fuck with a footballer. <laughs> they, were, they are the same species from time immemorial. The book is Losing My Spurs, Gaza, the Grief and the Glory, the Memoirs of a Failed Footballer. It's a, it's a hardback. Uh, it's available on Kindle for £9.99, as all pitch publications are. Um, failed footballer, certainly but successful human being with stories to tell. And we haven't got into your time cleaning boots and get kind of being the Dell boy of the apprenticeship. It's just, exactly. a, just a sensational story. And because you remember all of this and you're very good on the, the culture, the era, I'd turn this into a film if someone were to be you, maybe looking back on it. Like in Titanic, they've got the actual survivor being 
be as as her age in the 90s was if you get that so who will play yeah. you now looking back on the you of the late 80s oh wow that's that is a tough one um i would really struggle to think of someone who who would be that kind of character really i wonder if the, the lead person from jossie's giants how old is it that person now oh uh, yeah but that must be your age i think absolutely <laughs> god yeah is there going to be another book, by the way? I've no plans for it. I have written a couple of um, like fiction books, which are kind of based a little bit around my time as a footballer as well, just sort of mixtures of characters I've met and things that I've seen and stories I've heard. I'm possibly, I'm possibly looking at writing a third in that series, but I don't know. Just see how this is, you know, how people react to it. Really, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of just looking forward to, to hearing what people think of it, and you know, and I'm, and I'm generally hoping that it. I might get a few kind of people get in touch and say it's helped them in some way. That's, yes. that's genuinely something I would, I would like to get out of this. Absolutely. Uh, Eye on the Ball, Star on the Rise, uh, which are available on Kindle at £4.99. Happy 50th birthday for this year, apparently. Yes, yes, October. Uh, it's good to be said that because I forget my age now, but this is the one year I'm going to remember it all year, I think. I hope so. Uh, well, if you were in yeah. Asia, they count zero as your first year. So in Asia, you are actually 50. Right. I think. I didn't know that. You'll have to, you'll have to yeah, ask And I think them. you're probably right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I learned that from BTS, whom you must have. Shia <laughs> <laughs> uh, Shia, and have a wonderful rest of uh, the term or the year. Oh, happy Chinese New Year. Yes. It's just, yeah, we've just had our assembly today. Oh, uh, do you get two weeks off? Yeah, I'm off to Shanghai on Thursday. So I'm going to go have a few days in Shanghai. Wow. I'm a bit disappointed. It's international weekend, so I was hoping to go down there and catch some of the football matches. But, um, yeah, I'm a bit disappointed. It's international weekend. Oh, God. Next year. Uh, what year is it now? What is it Rabbit next year? There Tiger. Ooh. Yeah, I only know because it's, it's everywhere. There's toys everywhere and pictures everywhere and um, lanterns with pictures of them on it. And So, yes, yeah, the first year I've ever actually remembered it. Brill. Well, enjoy that. Enjoy the celebrations and the fireworks and the money and everything else. But thank you so much. This has been brilliant. Okay. And the book is phenomenal. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Nice to meet you. Pleasure. Hope to, hope to meet you out there. Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library! Shh!